0: Welcome to the September 29th, 2022 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll learn more about the negative findings from the Phase 3 trial of Ticagrelor for preventing vaso-occlusive crises in children with sickle cell disease. Discuss how residual cytoplasmic UBA1 contributes to the pathogenesis of Vexus syndrome. And learn more about the impact of host T-cell immunity in the response to chemotherapy in pediatric ALL. Our first blood article is entitled, Ticagrelor versus Placebo for the Reduction of vasoocclusive Crises in Pediatric Sickle Cell Disease. The Hestia 3 study by Matthew M. Heaney from Boston Children's Hospital in Massachusetts and an international group of colleagues. Patients with sickle cell disease suffer from a range of complications due to sickle hemoglobin, which leads to hemolytic anemia and to vasoocclusive crisis. The chronic hemolysis promotes oxidative stress, inflammation, endothelial dysfunction, and vascular injury. Vasoocclusive crises, or VOC, are caused by obstruction of microvasculature and associated ischemic tissue injury, and when pulmonary vessels are affected, results in acute chest syndrome. A recent study demonstrated that neutrophil platelet aggregation promotes vasoocclusion in sickle cell disease, and experiments showed that inhibiting tissue factor upstream of platelet to platelet interactions can reduce the accumulation of neutrophil platelet aggregates in mouse lungs. Four disease modifying therapies are currently approved for use in sickle cell disease, namely hydroxyurea, L glutamine, cruzenlizumab, and voxelotor. However, all four treatments are only partially effective in preventing disease complications. As the pathophysiology of sickle cell disease is complex, it is likely that successful pharmacologic intervention will require the targeting of several pathologic mechanisms. In the current study, the authors hypothesized that antiplatelet therapy is a potential therapeutic option because sickle cell patients have increased platelet activation at baseline, with additional activation taking place during vasoocclusive events. The antiplatelet agent, Ticagrelor, is an oral reversible ADP-P2Y12 receptor antagonist used to prevent myocardial infarction and stroke in adults at increased risk of thrombotic events. Prosugrel, a different ADP P2Y12 receptor antagonist, showed a trend toward efficacy for decreasing VOC in children with sickle cell disease in the Phase III Dove trial. The Sickle Cell Program with Ticagrelor, also known as Hestia, was therefore designed to assess the potential therapeutic benefits of Ticagrelor using doses targeting greater platelet inhibition than was observed in the Dove trial. Phase 2 studies of Ticagrelor showed that this agent was well tolerated with a low bleeding risk and adverse events consistent with only common medical issues in sickle cell disease. The HESTIA-3 trial aimed to evaluate the safety and efficacy of ticagrelor compared to placebo in preventing vaso-occlusive crises in pediatric sickle cell patients, and the results are described in this blood article. This Phase III multinational study enrolled a total of 193 patients at 53 sites across 16 countries on four continents between September 2018 and October 2019. Patients had either hemoglobin SS or hemoglobin S-beta-0. Study participants had to be between 2 and 17 years old, weigh at least 12 kilograms, and had to have experienced at least two vaso-occlusive crises in the past 12 months the subjects were randomized one-to-one to to weight-based doses of Ticagrelor or matching placebo. The primary endpoint was the number of vaso crises, defined as the number of painful crises, including those monitored at home, and or acute chest syndrome, or ACS. Secondary endpoints included the duration of painful crises, number of ACS events, and number of VOC requiring hospitalization or ER visits. The effect of ticagrelor on platelet activation served as an exploratory endpoint. The study was terminated 4 months before planned completion due to lack of efficacy. Median duration of ticagrelor exposure was 296.5 days. The trial did not meet its primary endpoint of reduction in the number of vasoocclusive crises, namely The estimated annual incidence rate of VOC was 2.74 in patients on ticagrelor and 2.6 in patients on placebo, yielding an incidence rate ratio of 1.06. The primary efficacy findings held true in subgroup analysis, including those based on age and baseline hydroxyurea use. In addition, ticagrelor did not show evidence of efficacy across any of the analyzed secondary endpoints. Median platelet inhibition at six months was 34.9% at pre-dose and 55.7% at two hours post-dose. 9% of patients in both treatment groups experienced at least one bleeding event. Three children in the ticagrelor group and one in the placebo group died. The overall adverse event profile was as expected in a pediatric sickle cell population, but there were 39% of patients in the ticagrelor group with sickle cell crisis, compared to 26% of patients in the placebo group. The authors concluded that ticagrelor was not effective at reducing vaso-occlusive crises in pediatric patients with sickle cell disease. In an accompanying commentary, Lydia Pecker from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland, and Patrick Ellsworth from the University of North Carolina Blood Research Center in Chapel Hill Note that the promising preclinical data demonstrating that P2Y12 inhibition decreased platelet activation and aggregation did not translate into a clinical benefit in the HESTIA-3 trial. This is the second negative study to show that P2Y12 inhibitors are not sufficient to prevent vasoocclusive crisis in children with sickle cell disease. Pecker and Ellsworth note that the future of treatment may very well involve multi-agent approaches. For example, in preclinical models, inhibiting both P-selectin and platelet GP1b-alpha more effectively attenuated platelet neutrophil aggregation than inhibiting either protein alone. Hestia-3 is also a useful reminder of enduring disparities in sickle cell disease outcomes, Pecker and Ellsworth add. The four children who died in this study were all from Africa or Asia, indicating that aggressive care expansion and investments in critical infrastructure are needed in this part of the world. They are optimistic that the Hestia 3 findings will inform future studies and mechanistic approaches to treating sickle cell disease. Reporting region-specific care standards and trial data in multinational studies is also needed to improve the care of people with sickle cell disease around the world, many of whom would benefit from access to established interventions as well as trials focused on developing novel therapies. Next up, we'll discuss an article published in Blood entitled, Translation of Cytoplasmic UBA-1 Contributes to VEXIS Syndrome Pathogenesis, by Marcella Farada from the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, and colleagues. VEXIS Syndrome, which stands for vacuoles, E1 ubiquitin-activating enzyme, X-linked autoinflammatory somatic syndrome, is an adult-onset autoinflammatory disease with hematologic manifestations. It is characterized by a high mortality rate and significant clinical heterogeneity. Vexus syndrome is caused by somatic mutations in hematopoietic progenitor cells in the UBA1 gene, which encodes the master enzyme of cellular ubiquitination. This syndrome was first described in 2020 by Beck and collaborators in 25 male patients with somatic UBA1 mutations and common features of systemic inflammation that include fevers, neutrophilic dermatosis, ear and nose chondritis, pulmonary infiltrates, myelodysplastic syndrome, and plasma cell disorders. Once treatment refractory systemic inflammation and progressive bone marrow failure develop, the patients often succumb to the disease. Although bone marrow transplant may be a curative treatment option, the selection of suitable transplant candidates is challenging due to the heterogeneity of the disease, older age at disease onset, associated comorbidities, and transplant-associated risks. Most disease-causing mutations involve methionine-41, the translation initiation codon for UBA-1B, and include codon substitutions resulting in either a leucine, valine, or threonine at this position. These three canonical variants constitute about 95% of Vexus-associated UBA1 variants reported in the literature to date. Described mutations lead to the loss of the normally active cytoplasmic isoform of UBA1B and production of a novel isoform, UBA1C, that lacks enzymatic activity. The goal of the current study was to identify the predictors of survival in Vexus syndrome, to better inform treatment decisions, as well as to understand the association between genetic variants in UBA1 and clinical outcomes. The study cohort included 83 male patients with clinically suspected Vexus syndrome from the NIH in the United States and from Leeds Teaching Hospital in the UK. The presence of Vexus-defining mutations in UBA1 was confirmed by Sanger sequencing of peripheral blood and bone marrow samples. Organ involvement Symptoms and hematologic abnormalities were assessed in all patients, and clinical diagnoses were confirmed by applying available classification or diagnostic criteria. Overall survival was evaluated using Kaplan-Meier analysis, and statistical models were used to identify vexus related features independently associated with survival. The association between transfusion dependence and genetic or clinical features was also assessed. Immunoblotting was used to confirm the genotype-specific difference in UBA1B levels in patient cells. All 83 analyzed patients were Caucasian, and all were treated with glucocorticoids. The median age at symptom onset was 66 years. The median number of prescribed disease-modifying antirheumatic drugs was 2.6. The top five most prevalent clinical manifestations of Vexus syndrome were fever in 83% of patients, skin involvement in 82%, arthritis in 58%, pulmonary infiltrates in 57%, and ear chondritis in 54%. The authors found that clinical features were associated with specific genetic variants. Patients with the met41 valine genotype were most likely to have an undifferentiated systemic inflammatory syndrome and less likely to develop ear chondritis. In contrast, patients with a threonine variant had more inflammatory eye disease and Sweet syndrome was more commonly diagnosed in patients with the leucine variant. Multivariate analysis revealed that ear chondritis was associated with increased survival, while transfusion dependence and the MET41 valine variant were independently associated with decreased survival. Using in vitro models, patient-derived cells and isoform-specific antibodies, the authors were able to show that the valine variant is associated with diminished translation of UBA1B compared to either the leucine or threonine variants, which may provide a molecular rationale for decreased survival. Moreover, investigators showed that the three canonical Vexis variants produce more UBA1B than any of the six other possible single nucleotide variants within this codon. This indicates that these three variants might have unique features in acting as near-cognate start codons for the UBA1B translation. These results also suggest that a minimum threshold of residual UBA1b level is required to cause disease, and that the other variants, which have not been identified in Vexis syndrome to date, are incompatible with clonal expansion and or cell survival. Supporting this idea, the authors identified a Vexis patient harboring two novel mutations in UBA1 occurring in cis on the same allele. One mutation involved the methionine start codon and caused a severe reduction in the levels of translated UBA1B in a reporter assay. However, co-expression of this mutation with the second mutation, which altered an adjacent codon, rescued UBA1B levels to those of canonical vexis mutations. The authors concluded that the regulation of residual UBA1B translation plays a critical role in the pathogenesis of VEXIS syndrome and contributes to disease prognosis. In an accompanying commentary, Ryan J. Stubbins, from the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada, notes that the study by Farada and collaborators demonstrates that VEXIS syndrome is characterized by genotype-specific features and that patients harboring the Met41 valine variant have a more severe clinical course, worse survival, and lower residual translation of the normal cytoplasmic UBA-1 isoform. This links the pathogenesis and severity of Vexis to a loss of UBA-1B function. Stubbins notes that additional studies are needed to understand which downstream pathways lead to systemic inflammation, as well as to assess the direct cellular effects of UBA-1B loss. Some questions that remain include whether patients with the MET-41 valine variant should be treated with allogeneic marrow transplantation, and if there are any differences in therapeutic responses between Vexus genotypes. In addition, future research should decipher whether therapeutic approaches aimed at restoring UBA1B function within cells could prove effective in Vexus syndrome. In the final segment of today's podcast, we will discuss the report entitled The Impact of T-Cell Immunity on Chemotherapy Response in Childhood Acute Lymphoblastic Leukemia by Yijian Li from St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, and colleagues. Combination chemotherapy is an effective cure for the majority of children with ALL. More than 85% survive without relapse, but survival following relapse is poor. Therefore, long-term remission in ALL appears to be influenced by factors beyond drug sensitivity. Recent studies have pointed to a link between ALL prognosis and genetic variants in genes that regulate host immune function. In addition, the introduction of CAR T-cell therapy has transformed the outcomes of patients with relapsed and refractory B-cell hematologic malignancies, including BALL. Moreover, CD19-targeted CARs have proven especially efficacious in certain high-risk pediatric patient populations. Taken together, these findings indicate that ALL is amenable to long-term, potentially curative immunologic control. However, the precise mechanisms of action of immunotherapy, as well as the interplay with chemotherapy and or molecular-targeted therapies, remain poorly understood. Previous studies conducted in patients with ALL and CML have shown that BCR-ABLE-1-specific T-cells are readily detectable during remission following chemotherapy and can exert cytotoxic effects against leukemia cells in vitro. In the current study, the authors used an immunocompetent murine model of BCR-ABLE-1-positive ALL to systemically investigate the cytotoxic effects of endogenous T-cells against BALL blasts, as well as the therapeutic contribution of standard ALL chemotherapeutic agents and tyrosine kinase inhibition. The authors first demonstrated that loss of T-cells in the host drastically increased the rate of relapse following treatment with cytotoxic chemotherapy or with disatinib, a second-generation tyrosine kinase inhibitor, or TKI. Both CD4 and CD8 T-cells were required for the curative effect. They further found that ABLE-1 mutations emerged early during treatment with dasatinib in both immunocompetent and immunocompromised mice. Interestingly, immunocompetent mice relapsed predominantly with unmutated BCR-ABLE and after completing a 35-day course of dasatinib. In contrast, immunodeficient mice relapsed while on dasatinib, and the majority had developed a resistance-inducing mutation. These data suggest that the immune system has a role in preventing the emergence of TKI-resistant clones. Transcriptomic analysis of leukocytes and serum cytokines during treatment suggested that interferon gamma and interleukin-12, or IL-12, are critical mediators of anti-leukemic immunologic control. In line with these findings, treatment with exogenous IL-12 significantly prolonged the overall survival achieved with disatinib in the immunocompetent model. Finally, when the authors analyzed immune cell composition of peripheral blood in 102 children treated with chemotherapy, they discovered a significant association between T-cell abundance and treatment outcomes. Furthermore, a higher T-cell versus monocyte ratio was associated with better event-free survival and relapse-free survival, which points to the prognostic impact of T-cell immunity in children with ALL. Taken together, These findings indicate that T-cell immunity plays a critical role in long-term remission of ALL and that chemotherapy outcomes may be improved by a better understanding of the interplay between host immunity and drug resistance. In an accompanying commentary, Catherine M. Burnt, from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia in Pennsylvania, notes that the study by Lee and collaborators addressed three important questions in ALL. First, whether immune mechanisms contribute to the cure with standard chemotherapy or tyrosine kinase inhibition. Second, is there an interplay between immune mechanisms and the emergence of kinase mutations during TKI therapy? And third, what are the key pathways involved in this response? Indeed, study findings provide mechanistic proof that CD4 and CD8 T-cells play an important role in the curative effects achieved with chemotherapy and tyrosine kinase inhibition, which can be applied in future studies of molecular mechanisms and the search for novel therapies. Furthermore, the findings suggest a role for the immune system in preventing the emergence of TKI-resistant clones, which is also worthy of further investigation. IL-12 has previously been studied in several malignancies, but not ALL, with disappointing results. Burnt notes that the identification of interferon gamma and IL-12 as involved in the immunological control of leukemia is particularly interesting. Additional studies are needed to define their exact role, as well as how to combine with cytotoxic agents and other immunotherapies. Burnt notes that despite intriguing findings, a few drawbacks remain, chief among them, the relatively artificial model. The human BCR-ABLE protein may be substantially more immunogenic in a murine host than it would be in an actual patient, where the fusion is composed of protein sequences that the patient is fully tolerant to. Future studies should also determine to what degree immune mechanisms contribute to the overall treatment response in patients treated with chemotherapy and whether response depends on molecular subtype, age, comorbidities, or other factors. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.